This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. invest a lot of energy trying to fix things that result from our surrender of responsibility over our own lives due to feeling disempowered. All of the issues we currently face in our inner and outer worlds are the result of us having delegated that responsibility to others, partners, doctors, governments, politicians and expecting them to fix things for us. That, in turn, comes from our early programming, which sets us up to believe that we are not powerful or good enough to orchestrate our own lives. Writes Olga Xian. In this episode, Olga Xian explores ways of reclaiming our autonomy by transforming our negative programs creating new boundaries, and making empowered choices that create a positive shift inside and out. Olga Xian is an empowerment catalyst, a sort of archaeologist of the mind, dedicated to excavating the deeper truth buried in every complex, amazing, powerful human being. Using her own unique framework for self-mastery, she specializes in identifying and transforming the negative subconscious programs that drive our circumstances, relationships, self-worth, and success. Olga shows individuals how to reclaim their autonomy, leverage their magnetism, and transform crises and challenges into breakthroughs and strength. Here is the interview with Olga Xian. In your own words, who is Olga Xian? Oh my goodness, what a, a leading question. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm someone who has 
finally, after many, many years of hard work and internal searching, found the essence of myself. I can't say I know myself completely, but I think I have become a person who cares more about being herself than about what people think. It's taken a long time to get to that place. But if I were to put labels on it, I'd have to say that I'm a bit of a rabble rouser. I'm a disruptive thinker. I love to be creative. I love, I'm a writer. I'm an author. I'm, I'm a quester. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for answers and I'm always trying to understand how things work, which is what, what got me into this work that I do. So I really like to understand why we do the things we do, what makes us the way we are and what triggers us and what causes us to find joy or not. So I find that whole realm fascinating. That's great. Thank you so much, Yoga. My official first question to you is, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself and life? I think it was accepting and loving myself as I am. I mean, I grew up in Ireland, and even though I'm not religious, I would say I'm spiritual, I'm very anti-religious in a way because I could see the impact of this in Ireland. It's a very religious country, as you, I'm sure you know. And even though, you know, I wasn't part of that, it's in the psyche. It's deeply embedded into the psyche, and it's impossible to get away from it. It's in politics, it's everywhere. It's in the way people live, in the way that they talk, in the way they put themselves down, in the way that they drink to try to hide their pain cover up their pain, their shame. So getting through all of that, I think, and coming to my own principles for living, I think that was probably the most challenging thing to do. I had a lot of unlearning to do. And of course, that's the journey, as you know, and it's the work that I do now as well. And, the, you know, the stuff that comes at us in terms of challenges is what shapes us. And if we embrace that and go with it, we can go on a fabulous journey and we can emerge because we never really emerge. You know, we're always evolving, hopefully, but we can expand our sense of self and then we can really start to feel an ownership of it. And that took a long time, a lot of inner work, a lot of exploration, a lot of stepping back and sort of observing people, not being part of the sort of almost cult. I never really was part of the in crowd. So that enabled me to sort of step back a bit. And I never was into drinking or going to pubs or any of that stuff. So I was very much an observer on the outside looking in. And that helped me to see how people interacted and why and, and how religion with that thinking drove them. So I'd say that's, that's the biggest thing I've accomplished is to have my own sense of self, to have shed that kind of programming that told me that there was an, an authority outside of me that was greater than me that I had to defer to. And I don't believe that. So that was a big one. Hmm. That makes me think about religion and spirituality. What is the difference, in your opinion? Well, religion is something that is imposed by man, um, humankind, let's say. I, I have a very interesting theory about this I'm going to share with you. <laughs> I'm going to show you, well, to give you, an, in a nutshell, the difference is one is a set of rules and rituals and beliefs that are imposed on us by uh, a self-appointed hierarchy, you know, people. They decide this is where it's going to be. It's pretty much a political party, I'm, as far as I'm concerned. And it's a way to control people. It's actually a way to disempower people because you're telling them they have to follow your rules. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll be able to do penance and get forgiveness or absolution or any of this stuff, which to me makes absolutely no sense because we're absolutely fine the way we are. We don't need an intermediary. So with spirituality, with that, we, are, we have our own godness in us. You know, I don't believe that 
God or universal life force, whatever you want to call it, screeches to a halt when it reaches our skin. You know, <laughs> we are part of it. It's part of us. We are it. So for me, spirituality is something deeply personal and also deeply private. It's an experience. It's something that we individually experience within ourselves, a sense of oneness with all that there is, a sense of power perhaps when we connect or feel we connect with that universal life force out there. And it's a very different thing. We don't have an intermediary. We are our own hotline. We are our own, um, our own authority. And there's nothing between us and that. Yes, I agree. Why do you think so many people need um, to believe in a personal God? Well, I think they were programmed to think this way. This is some of what I was going to share with you. If we go right back and we, we sort of look back at the times of the Crusades and when Christianity was actually forcibly imposed on people, you know, you convert or you're massacred. And that, that was deeply embedded in the psyche of our ancestors and has been handed down. And, you know, I feel that right back then it caused a split. So we split off from our own sort of divinity, our own authority, whatever you want to call that. And we've been progressively disconnecting ever since. So people were forced to believe or forced to defer to this external authority and they started to lose touch with their own. And that's not to say we've all done that because so many people around the world, and it's wonderful to see, and I know you're one of these, are very much awakened and consciously evolving and very spiritually engaged. And it's fantastic to see that. But people who aren't and, and people who are still kind of run by the programming that we all take on as we're growing up and through religion, through parenting, through education, whatever it might be. And they're still very much run by that. So they don't have their own sense of authority. And they have and do, def they have deferred increasingly to outside authorities. So I see a progression. It's what I call the split. I see that when that happened way back then, we started to lose our sense of what was natural and good for us. So it's, it began with food, where food began to be de denatured began to be processed. We started to get away from the earth. We started living in, you know, maybe a bit later on the high-rise buildings. But the next stage was medicine. It was no longer sort of natural medicine based on how the body worked and what plants and nutrients we could find in nature. It became drug-based and symptomatic in its approach. And then from there, we went on to industry and then environment. And then it, all of these things became more and more denatured. And we surrendered more and more our personal responsibility for them. So, you know, that disconnection is really pivotal. And I think it's why now, with technology taking over, why that seems so appealing to people. It, it doesn't give you what you're looking for, really. But people are seeking that connection. They are desperate to have the human connection. And we all need it. So if we've split apart from our own deep sense of being connected to who we are, the power of who we are, and all of the things that we're capable of that most people are oblivious to. And so I think that's why we still defer to outside authorities. We've surrendered responsibility because we learned to do that a long time ago. And now we, we just, we want governments and other authorities to fix things for us. Um, do you think that there is a place for religion, organized religion in our societies? I think there's a huge need for community. I think all of the good things that people might claim that religion has done is done by humans. 
<laughs> we just need humans with open hearts. We don't need a church that costs a fortune to build. We don't need to, you know, go through all those rules and rituals. And we don't need to have people in robes and all this pomp and ceremony that, to me, again, separates us. I think we need, more than anything, community. More and more. And especially, as I said, with technology evolving as it, how it, as it has, we need that even more. We need a deep sense of heartfelt connection. And because we need that, I think a lot of people go to religion hoping to find it. And maybe they do. But I also think at the same time, it doesn't really give them the deep connection that they're searching for, because there's always going to be this other hierarchy presented to them as the way to go. True. Is it possible then to live without any programming or any kind of programming imposed by others? <laughs> right. It's probably not possible. You know, we absorb tons of stuff. A lot of it's good. You know, we have lots of good programming and, and we need it. It keeps us safe and keeps us knowing right from wrong and many things that are healthy and positive in our lives. I'm not sure it's ever really possible to get to a place of being in entirely of your own mind because how can you know even you know we'll, even the journey is influenced by people along the way you know we we're always absorbing and i think the best we can do is be mindful and conscious and as present as we can so that we can sense what's good what feels right what feels true to us and what we actually want to take on and say yes to so if you like i suppose it's you'd have to be supremely vigilant all the time um, to master that fully. Hmm, yeah, and that's my next question to you. What is self-mastery? Well, I think it's the attempt, or let's say the process, of getting to a place of ownership of who you are, knowing who you are, liking who you are, and then thriving with that, contributing who you are to the world and sharing that. So, for me, it's about very much about shedding stuff first. I think we have to remove certain beliefs and, you know, the, the negative program that we do take on, you know, beliefs, self-doubts, the insecurities, the projections, the negative expectations, the fears, all of that stuff. We have to see the lie behind that stuff and we have to see the truth um, that's beneath all of those lies, the truth about who we really are. And we have to then very diligently and mindfully, and it, and it takes work, it takes practical work, it takes mental work, and it takes emotional heart and lots of bits of us to make that transformation. Because when we absorb this stuff growing up, when we are programmed, we don't even know we're being programmed. So whatever we end up with, when we get to the point where we're, we're operating from those feelings or those beliefs, whatever it is that's been programmed into us, we just see it as being a, it's just who we are. We don't question it even. We can't even separate ourselves from it because it happened at such a formative stage, such a primitive stage in our lives, a primal phase, if you like. So it became kind of indistinguishable from ourselves. It's a lot of very mindful teasing out. And really, I think it comes down to deciding whether a belief works for you or not. You know, you can choose to believe something, but does it work for you? Does it help you? Does it take you forward? Is it a positive thing? Does it enhance your life? Does it bring you happiness, fulfillment? And maybe that's the only filter that we should be using, you know, to get to that place of supposed mastery over our thoughts and our feelings as much as we can. Yeah, it just it seems to me like most of us won't be able to get to this stage of being um, in this lifetime if there is another one. I have seen addicts 
And uh, for some of them, the method of believing in a higher power, as they call it, some sort of God, has helped them to live a healthier life and happier life. So what would you say to that? I think that's great. (laughs) I think if it works for them, great, keep doing it. If that's giving you the life you want, if that's giving you the fulfillment you seek, wonderful. You found what works for you. You know, I'm, I'm not judging religion in a blanket sense. I think very many people do find a piece of themselves or some peace maybe in themselves um, that they weren't able to find anywhere else. Maybe they also get the acknowledgement or the validation or, or other things that have been missing in their lives that help them to feel better about who they are. But, you know, again, no judgment. If that works for them, I think that's fantastic. We all have different paths of getting to wherever we want to get to. That, Olga, might be connected to fear, too, right, of self-exploration. So it's easier for them to attach to uh, religious beliefs. I think that's very true. And, you know, part of our programming is has left us kind of fearful to be powerful. We don't really think we have right. Well, we don't even think this way. We don't even question whether we have a right to be powerful. We don't even think of it necessarily. So when we start to consciously embark on a journey like that, or somebody might trigger us or or push us or encourage us or inspire us to go there, it's going to bring up a lot of stuff, lots of reasons as to why it's not safe. I mean, the programming that we have, those beliefs are very stubborn and the ego is very stubborn because it's trying to keep us safe. And if it looks as if that other unfamiliar territory is kind of scary, then it may try to keep us. Yeah, but there was one thing that I, have learned recently about myself in life uh, regarding safety is that safety is within, like it's trusting our own minds. Oh, absolutely. I think that's wonderful. I think real safety comes from deep self-acceptance. Maybe I could explain a little bit here about what I call our missing pieces, because it's kind of a fundamental part of the the programming that happens to us. And maybe this will make sense to you too, Valeria. So big piece of the programming, big piece of the work of getting to that place of homes or not, as you say, maybe not wanting to go there, relates to these missing pieces, which are essentially the formative qualities such as acceptance, trust, respect, validation, support, all of the things that we wanted to have cultivated in us or ideally should have had cultivated in us in order to be whole, to be complete, to be solid as a person, to go forth in life and express who we are and to love who we are. Very few of us get that. We don't really get unconditional acceptance, for example. Our parents didn't get it. Their parents didn't get it. So these missing pieces get handed down. When we learn, well, they have a huge impact on our lives. They really sort of shape our sense of self. You know, when we we end up with certain bits missing and that distortion we were talking about earlier. Um, so any missing pieces that we have, let's say a shortfall in validation or support or acceptance, which is the number one missing piece for everybody, that causes us to then live a certain way. We become, we tend to compromise. We tend to then spend the rest of our lives, unless we learn better, we're, we're trying to find we're trying to earn acceptance. We're trying to get other people to love us, to give us the acceptance that we didn't get deep down inside when we started out. So all of these missing pieces really have a huge impact on the way we live our lives. They determine what we think of ourselves and what we think other people think of us. And they shape our perception of the world. You know, we might see the world as being a tough place where it's very hard to succeed. And 
they also then, as I said, generate fears and negative expectations, which affects the way that we show up in life. And then they make us reactive because we've got all this stuff inside, things that we're actually afraid people might see. Because if we don't feel acceptable, what does that mean? We're unacceptable, we're not good enough, we're not important. So we, we might try to hide that from other people. In fact, I spent a lot of my life trying to hide those things from other people, believing myself not to be acceptable or worthy. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think most of us have been there. Um, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so filling in those missing pieces, and there's a very practical little process for doing that, has a huge impact because it's not just that we start to feel better about ourselves. It's that embodying those qualities and starting to be them and fill them up inside ourselves, it causes us then to attract people on the outside and situations with those same qualities in them, just as the reverse is true. So if we have missing pieces, we're going to attract partners or people or maybe bosses or co-workers who have the same missing pieces as us. And that's where we can get into a lot of heartache because we might hope that our partner would finally give us what's been missing. Maybe that we're looking for affection, for understanding, for validation. But because of our missing pieces, because we tend to attract people with the same missing pieces, we often don't get that. And so we can get into a lot of blaming and angst in relationships where we're feeling our needs are not being met, but really they need to be met by us. So filling in those missing pieces changes everything. And, you know, there's something interesting that learning now, some of us are learning through these emerging sciences, such as quantum physics, which confirms what you and I have probably know for a little bit that our thoughts are electrical and our emotions are magnetic that they actually have a charge to them so what we're thinking and feeling has a very real impact and we're always transmitting messages out into the world so when we start to get that and really feel that and when we start to take charge of those thoughts and emotions we can take charge not exactly of what comes back to us, but of what we're transmitting. And it's going to be a lot more positive and generate a lot more positive outcomes than the default negative programming that we might, that might have been running us up to then. It's a very different scenario. So shall I just take an example to, as to how to fill these in? If we look at acceptance, which is that number one missing piece for most of us, I look at these individual qualities and I give them a definition. So I break them down and sort of define what they really mean. So acceptance then in this, in the context of this work is about putting yourself first in healthy, practical ways. It's about saying no to unhealthy compromises or anything that doesn't feel right for you. It's about maybe accepting compliments graciously without qualifying them and actually expecting good things, expecting to be treated well by others because we are after all deserving and acceptable. And it's going out of our way to take care of our health and our well-being, which might mean taking time to sit quietly and, and have breakfast or slowing down and taking time out when we need to because the body's tired. It's about respecting our body's needs, loving ourselves. And it's really, it's about making yourself your most precious commodity because you are, right? So when we start to do those things, we when we build, work on building healthy self-acceptance, we become less emotionally needy. We don't need other people to tell us that we're okay or to make us feel good about ourselves or even to give us permission to, to be the person we want to be. So, yeah, so we take control and that's where, we're, that's where we start to master a piece of ourselves because we're deciding now what we're worth. 
And in fact, that's the way it's meant to be. Of course, people on the outside are going to determine or let us know if we're good at our jobs or, you know, if we're contributing the way we're meant to, whatever. But essentially, we more than anyone need to determine our value. We decide what we're worth. You know, one of the interesting things when you work with a few of the other missing pieces, for example, respect, which is a really key piece as well, which is all about making boundaries. And so when we make a boundary, we're telling people what we're worth. We're telling them how far they can go. Here's the line and you can't cross this line. This is as far as you can go with me. So we actually, as a result of the way we're interacting with others, we're always telling them how to treat us, right? So filling in that missing piece of acceptance is really key. And just doing that alone changes a lot for people in their lives. Yeah, that's, that's huge. I know that for a fact, like, uh, by practicing this in my life, acceptance of life the way it is, of reality and myself. It takes a lot of courage. That's one thing I know for sure. Yeah, I have two questions for you um, about self-acceptance or acceptance in general. How do we balance self-acceptance with our urge and desire to connect with others and belong? I think that the more we accept ourselves, the more we are being true to ourselves. And that means we can go a lot more deeply with those we connect with. So if we're being authentic, if we're being truly honest and heartfelt, let's say emotionally honest, that enables us to actually really connect with them. It's the other surface stuff or the hiding or the pretending to be something we're not that actually distances us. Yeah, does that make sense? It does. And maybe if we are being honest and communicating our truth in an honest way and kind way, because I believe in kindness and compassion, and the other person doesn't accept and gets angry or, you know, becomes defensive, would that be a sign that we are in a wrong relationship? If this is an intimate relationship, for example. Right. I think it's a piece of homework coming up to be done. <laughs> you know, um, nothing, another thing I would say is that nothing right, is wrapped. Right. So our programming is actually really powerfully designed to take us where we're meant to go. So when we attract certain people into our lives, it's not that we need to run the other way. We think, oh gosh, look, this looks all wrong. <laughs> we can say, ah, now this is interesting because this is exactly what I've been working with for the past how many years. And this is a muscle, an emotional muscle I need to work. And that's what happens. So when something is triggered emotionally, it means the programming has kicked in. A piece of programming has kicked in. And we or they may instinctively want to react a certain way as we've been sort of programmed to do. But if we can stop ourselves and step back and see what the missing piece is, right, in that conversation, is it validation that's missing? Is it support? Is it, is it acceptance? Is it respect? And in that moment then, if we can bring that quality into the conversation, so it may be about us saying, look, you know what? This doesn't feel right for me. So I'm, I'm going to leave now. Or we might say, I hear you. I really get it. Um, although that doesn't work for me. And here's what I've discovered. So I think it's an opportunity to grow. Any interaction we have like that, as long as it's not outright abuse that we do, in fact, need to say no to and walk away from, and not go back for more. Um, we are there to learn something. And we, that's how we grow. Relationships are there for us to discover who we are to express it, to share it, and to start loving it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. What I think about this, what you just said, that maybe if we are, if we think that we are expressing ourselves in an honest way, but then somebody to somebody and that person is getting angry or defensive, 
in a way that might mean that we have not done our own homework of self-observation. Because once we know ourselves, we'll know the other too. Yeah, I think we're always going deeper. And I don't think the homework ever ends. We're always going deeper to another layer of acceptance, to another layer of understanding, another layer of, of seeing other people as well and having compassion for that. But it is a fine line. But we don't want to make unhealthy compromises that pull us back into a, a codependence of some kind or, well, if I take care of his needs, maybe he'll take care of mine, that kind of thing. We want to stay true to ourselves. And that's the biggest gift we can give anyone, ourselves and a partner. I love that. Okay. Um, so that leads to my next question. You have dedicated yourself to discover the deeper truth in every human being. I have two questions for you. One, what is the deeper truth you have discovered about yourself? And two, is there a deeper truth we all humans share? Yes. Well, I think that part of the deeper truth that I've discovered for me that's been meaningful is that we have tremendous power. And of course, this is true for everybody. So it's answering both, both of your questions, really, I suppose, because the deeper truth is that we are phenomenal. You know, we have all the faculties, the qualities, the tools we need to thrive, and we don't need anybody's permission to do it. If we look at ourselves as these walking, talking, independent, no batteries needed, right. <laughs> unit of self-sufficiency and we think of all the things we're capable of you know the spirituality our connection this hotline this invisible hotline that we can have to god to universal oneness whatever it is we think of our creativity we think of our imagination we think of the power of our brains and the power of this program the power of our subconscious which is actually very magnetic and all of these faculties that we have that really leave our electronic gadgets in the shade when you think about it and um, there's so much of, of stuff that we have delegated now to technology, let's say, simply because we haven't evolved those faculties within ourselves, which is a, a real shame. And I hope some of us are coming back around to that now because we are being pushed to evolve like never before. And we are phenomenal. We have untapped capacities. And, you know, I've touched maybe a tiny fraction of, and so have you, you know, of, of that deeper truth. But there's so much more to know, yeah, right. barely using our brains, you know? So true. And there's so much more of us to discover. Yeah. You know, something that was interesting, I was into Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, for quite a long time. It's all about really in the integration of yourself and reality and others. Somehow this resonates as some sort of truth. So there's no me, really. There's no you. There's just us. Well, it is. And it, it's a quantum reality as well. You know, when we look at stuff at that level, apparently there's no space between us, you know. So we are, in fact, in, inextricably connected. And we are a seamless part of the universe. We are interconnected and interdependent. And, and that's wonderful. It's the separation, that split that I was talking about that, that gives us the illusion of being separate and maybe lonely and maybe depressed and isolated and all of those things that may follow from that. Um, but truly, as you say, we are, we are connected. And it's, I think it's really important right now at this stage in, in our evolution <laughs> or failure to evolve perhaps to really get that, to understand that we are all in this together and that we affect each other and that every choice we make affects other people, you know, that we share this planet and 
you know, we hear the expression we're used to, you know, live and let live. But really, if we are all connected and we are all affecting each other, yes, we need to be fully responsible for ourselves. We also need to be accountable to others for the way that we live and the way that we are because we are all connected. Um, that makes me think about illusion, like you just talked about, you said the word illusion. So everything that has been created based on separation, they are all illusions, right? All these entities like religion create separation, um, countries, governments. Um. Yes, it's the divide and conquer. <laughs> it's that principle. And, and as I said, we see it happening hugely now with technology, which some people would say it's fantastic for bringing people together, but really it separates us more and more and from ourselves. I love technology. So what is it about technology? So how is it harmful? Okay, so I, I should have been more specific when I said that. I'm thinking of all the wireless technologies and, you know, the the cell towers all around us, the, the distraction of gadgets, the screen time, um, the way it affects our brains, the way it fragments um, society and families and relationships you know when you have people have on their cell phones they go to a restaurant they're sitting there in front of each other having a lovely meal and they're talking to each other on their phones or they're not and they're completely absorbed by their their technology so it's that technology i mean of course i love my computer i could not manage without my computer but <laughs> all too. my stuff is hardwired you know i don't i don't have this radiation coming at me that's frazzling my brain or or creating ill health or all the other things that are happening now with this and of course the technology that I'm talking about this wireless stuff and the stuff that's invading our lives more and more is all about surveillance too. So it's about us being owned and run more and more from the outside. So it's, it's the kind of the ultimate progression from that split I was talking about where initially we got so we got disconnected from our own authority and our own sense of self and ownership and management and mastery of self. And here we are now being practically run by technology on many levels. If we work on ourselves in the sense of thinking for ourselves and using only what is of benefit to us and others, won't it help? I think so. I mean, this, this whole concept of, of consciousness that we have lost is, is so key to creating the life that we want. And I'll kind of touch back again on quantum physics because through that science, we're now getting to see that what we think and feel and project and, and envision, but also embody, can be realized. We can literally make a new reality show up. So, you know, one of the things that I, I've been working on, we, we have a little project called the 20, 2020 Vision, which is about people embracing a vision and starting to live it. And there's some kind of basic principles that go along with that kind of manifestation, wanting to really literally change your environment or your situation, whatever it might be, by doing some simple things, holding a vision of some higher possibility, and then starting to live as if that's already a reality. So I call it pre-living and pre-loving your ideal future life, but also being grateful for it because we know, and this is one of the wonderful things that Dr. Joe Dispenza has made so easily accessible to people, and I love his, the way he puts this, that receivership is, is our, let's say, sorry, gratitude is the highest state of receivership. So in other words, being grateful before something happens draws it to you because you're telling the universe, it's already here. I'm already living this. I'm feeling it. I'm demonstrating it. I'm deeply connected to it emotionally. And we literally then start to make that matter. It starts in our mind and we make mind 
matter. So we know this is physically possible with quantum physics. We, we can actually see it happening at those at the quantum level. And so we, we have that very real capacity through consciousness and through mindful envisioning with those qualities that go with it, the embodying, the gratitude, the feeling it, the loving it, pre-living it. Literally, we can make stuff happen. Mm, wow. Yes, a thousand <laughs> times to that. <laughs> a thousand. <laughs> Maybe more than a thousand. A lot more than a thousand, really. Yes. Oh, God. Um, acceptance, self-acceptance, gratitude. Wow, they are so powerful once achieved, right, or practiced. You wrote about the five steps to freedom. We talked about illusion before, and this is, I think this is the right time to ask you this question. And one of the five steps you mentioned was take responsibility for our own choices, actions, and reactions. So my question is, how much control do we really have over our choices? Isn't free will an illusion? Yeah, I suppose you could see it that way. And a lot of people would say to me when I sort of encourage that, encourage them to start making mindful choices. They might say, well, look, I can't. This is the way it is. This is the way it's set up by government or industry, or whatever. And that's the way it is. But I think we can and must make choices, whether it's saying yes or no to something, whether it's drawing a line with somebody we meet in an interaction, whether it's something just deciding not to buy certain things, not to buy plastics anymore, to buy stuff at the farmer's market, to eat in a different way, to behave and speak in a different way. We have many, many options for choosing um, to be the kind of person we'd like to be. So a lot of that external stuff is the result of us not making conscious, healthy choices, because we have given away that responsibility. We've, we've allowed governments and industry and others to decide how things should be done. I and mean, in fact, we kind of really wanted them to take care of stuff because we didn't feel empowered to do it ourselves. It's an interesting question, and it's not possible to be completely free and autonomous in our choosing. But I think we have a long way to go in reclaiming our autonomy. And there are lots of ways in which we can start to make healthy, positive, everyday choices that then change the collective. Because, you know, each person does make a difference. We might feel that we don't. And so we go along with what's still happening. And of course, then we're supporting it. I think changing course and making the choices that we can make and doing what's right for us and the planet takes us in the right direction. It takes being conscious, like the word you used, or awaken, um, being, uh, what's the other word we use a lot, um, being aware um, of ourselves and others and reality, which in my opinion, from my own experience, it comes when we are ready, whatever that means. And then maybe then free will might become more of a reality for us once we are aware. Oh, definitely. I think you have to have the awareness first. It's the first step towards any kind of transformation, as you know. So, yeah, and actually wanting to change because you look around and you think, well, most people actually don't want to take responsibility. They're overwhelmed with stuff. They just want it to be taken care of. They want to be given a pill. They want a TV dinner. They want it to be easy. True. <laughs> and the easier way, it's never the best way. I mean, the healthier way, right? No, and of course, it doesn't bring them fulfillment either. It might just enable them to get through the day, but it doesn't bring the deeper fulfillment that I think we all do still seek. Yes. I also 
try, like I said earlier, I practice self-acceptance, but also acceptance of reality as it is. And a lot of people are not ready to become aware of certain things. They are simply not. And we, we try to force them into this realm of awareness. They might get lost even. I have seen that happen too, where people just lose their minds. They don't know who they are anymore. So that's the reason why I practice acceptance of reality the way it is, just the way it is. There's a reason to be the way it is. Yeah, and it's hard to see that big a picture. I mean, I think that's very healthy and gentle on yourself to be that way. I think it's important to know the fine line between being a, a peaceful warrior and, and also just letting things be and accepting that some things will unfold the way they're going to unfold, that we can't change anybody else anyway. Of course we no, can't. No, right. So trying to force yeah, the process of changing, that's not a good idea. No, I think we can just be an inspiration. All we can do is live it and allow it to wash over onto others if they wish it. Yeah, right. Because we are connected, that will be transmitted or to others, right? Automatically. We don't have to try that hard. No. And I think, you know, when we change, we affect a lot of people around us. Because if we change, the dynamics with others can no longer stay the same. We can heal old relationships. We can just not play the same old games. And we can stop telling the same old story and feeding the same old neural networks that create the same chemicals in our body and an addiction to drama or whatever it might be. You know, we have control over that. Yeah, I agree. How does the mind change the brain and how does the brain change the mind? That is a lovely question. It's, and it's such an intangible, isn't it? Because the mind is not something we can see or touch or hold or, or track down or anything. I think the brain responds to a lot of what the mind thinks. I learned once that the, the function of the brain is to simplify things. It's just there to simplify complications. And that that's its primary purpose. And it's kind of a nice, simple way of looking at it. But I think we complicate things and the mind gets incredibly complicated because with programming and then with coping strategies to deal with all that programming and then, you know, strategies for hiding ourselves and not covering up shame or whatever, you know, it gets very, very complicated and the mind gets extraordinarily consuming in a way. It takes a lot of our energy and creates lots of different chemistry in the body too. I'm not really sure how to answer your question. I think that there's huge interplay between the two. We have the potential to use our brains a great deal more. We're learning that certain parts of the brain, if we activate them, can take us to new levels of awareness and understanding and creativity and all kinds of wonderful stuff. But I don't know if we will ever really know the full extent of the interaction between those two. Um, my thoughts about this um this exchange of um, connectivity between mind and brain would be something like this. Tell me if it makes sense to you. If we practice things like we just talked today, like gratitude and acceptance, self-acceptance, that practice will change the brain, wouldn't it? And then if we also add um, healthy habits, physical habits, habits like eating healthy and exercising, other things too, like meditating, reading, writing, that would change the mind. So in a way, it seems like it could be simple, right? This whole change in the mind and brain, but it's not easy. 
No, and it gets more complicated because, as I was saying, when we have, you talk about repeating patterns, and when we have repeated emotional reactions or dramas in our lives, I was talking about a little bit about neural networks that get, that develop in our brain, right? And the more we feed that particular story, the more drama we give it, the more energy we give it, the more we reinforce a particular behavior that goes with it, the more we expand that neural network. And that neural network creates chemistry that affects our physical body to the point where I think Joe Dispenza again said this, that we end up having the mind in the body and then the body starts to run the mind because we have that chemistry happening. We have addiction happening because when we do certain things, certain behaviors and those very developed neural pathways kick in again and and do their thing, um, it produces that produces chemicals that we become addicted to. So there's a very physical element to this as well that we have to take charge of if we want to really get to grips with it. So everything, in a way, starts with the, the mind, every, every thought that we give attention to, give power to, which is like, it seems like what we have to do really is just to replace, right? We try to practice as much as possible every single day, gratitude, acceptance, like virtues, and they will overwrite those early programming. Makes sense to me the way it works. The more we practice positive habits of thinking, and that will translate into actions, and then the more we'll gain um, control of our own minds. So that's the, really the whole practice, just trying to be more positive and healthy every day. My last questions to you. Uh, sometimes they're not connected because they, they're just um, curiosities of mine. So what is another word for healing? I think wholeness. I think coming back to a place of wholeness and bringing all of ourselves online, back online into the body and being in alignment. I think healing is about coming together within ourselves and it kind of relates to to integrity, I think, where integrity for me means that everything is in alignment. What you do, what you say, the actions you take, they, they are all in agreement. You're not doing one thing and saying another. So for me, I think healing is a bit that too. It's about really being, becoming truly aligned, coming back into a sort of a, a place of centeredness and connectedness with the self where I think, I think you just, you've let go of the stuff that pulls you off course, away from that autonomy or integrity, whatever you want to call it. So it's about, I think it's really about wholeness. Yes, I like that, Okay, So it made me think about the practice of good things, uh, quotes and quotes, because most of the time I don't like saying good and bad. I say like non-harming actions and thoughts. So like coming back to that place where everything we do and the way we think, it doesn't harm ourselves and others. It seems like this is a way of healing our own lives and other people's lives and who knows the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a big part of that, if I can just add, would be to really, if, if you're not already, really connect with nature. So it's about human nature, but mother nature as well. We need to connect with both. And, and they're so inextricably linked. We've lost that sense of connection too, you know. So, and a lot of healing happens in nature. You know, we, des- we so, so need nature. It's not something that, 
throughout our, our sort of modern history, we've tended to exploit nature and use natural resources to our own ends. But really, we're so deeply dependent on nature, are meant to be deeply connected to it. And I think that is very much part of, of the healing and the wholeness that that can bring us. Uh, I agree. So let me ask you a question about that. I absolutely agree about, yeah, I love nature. I mean, like who doesn't? But what would you suggest for people who live, let's say, in New York City? I mean, they can't, they can't live close to Central Park, which is a beautiful place. I suppose it depends on what they want. <laughs> uh, maybe they're because, not ready. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can't say, look, for the people in New York, I think they should do this. They might not want that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they God, may be yeah. perfectly happy with the hustle and bustle and that that's why they're in New York. They're very distracted. They're very kind of stimulated and engaged in what they want to be doing and maybe doing a hundred different things a day. Maybe they love multitasking. Maybe they're not really concerned about being deeply connected with themselves because they're flying high and they're living a fast-paced life and that may be what they want. So <laughs> who am I to say <laughs> that they should want something else if they don't? I guess I'm saying that because now I live in Florida and I love in here, you know, close to lakes and trees and the beach and oh, it's just incredible. But then my fiance lives in New York City and now like we're getting married. Oh no. And then I have to move there. Mm, is it good for you? And is it, is it a given that you be the one to move first rather than him? Yes, because most of the work it's done in New York for both of us. So it is important. I mean, it's just practical to be there and then in Florida. Well, if practical is going to work for you, then go for it. <laughs> <laughs> But if heartfelt living is what you want, and if you want to be in nature and you love it and that feeds you and lifts you and heals you, well, you know the answer. Right. But then I also have the other practices that I do, which feels right as well, is the inner safety, inner peace. It's inside. I don't rely as much on the outside to be joyful, to be happy, and to be to feel good, which sometimes it feels that way, you know, living close to the beach. It's, it's pleasurable. It's beautiful. It's great. But like we talked earlier, life is about responsibility too. Taking responsibility for ourselves. We have to move to a place that we don't really enjoy as much as other places, but it's just necessary. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that you ask the question because the question implies a little bit of doubt. And I think, you know, you, I'm sure with all of your skills and all your, your spiritual practices and everything that you've done and keep doing, that you, you will come to a place where you gladly make the decision in either direction and you want it for you. Because I think making a decision for the sake of another person, well, we can rationalize it and justify it as you just did. And there's nothing wrong with that because there may be compromises that we actually want to make if it is a compromise for you. But I think it's just about knowing yourself well enough that you are really clear about why you're going and that you really want to go and that it's a choice you're making and not a reaction to a, a seeming requirement. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Olga. Um, what is your definition of love? It's funny, I've never, I've never stopped to define that. I mean, I think it's many, many things. It's all of the qualities I've touched on when we talk about respect and trust and acceptance. These are all expressions of love. 
Um, but to define it per se, I think it's maybe an open heart, a connection with nothing in the way, you know, all kinds of ways to, to define it. Mm, I like that. Um, you said open heart, yeah. Open heart, open mind. They are in alignment there with love. Yeah, and a deep yeah. connection because I don't think love happens unless there's some connection, whether it's a connection to nature or to the universe or other people or a loved one or an animal. You know, we have to have a connection for something to pass between us, right? So I think that's, you know, love can be experienced that way through connection. What is success to you? I think success is when you find your own personal fulfillment, whatever that might mean. It may have nothing to do with money, although it might be. And then money actually is often a, um, an outcome of just doing what you love. So you can find fulfillment for all the right reasons and then money just, just is there because you, you're not even working to make it happen. You're just doing what you love and you contribute in that way. So I think for me, success is, is loving what I'm doing and loving the life that I'm living around it. Do you believe in life after death? I don't know. You know, I did quite a bit of, I used to do regressions for clients <laughs> and take them back to some supposedly former life, you know, where they reconnect. And I've done some myself. And in fact, I've done spontaneously some of those. And even some writing has come through spontaneously. And maybe you've had that experience too. Um, and I've also done progressions. So taking people into a future potential. But I don't know. I can't answer that for sure. I think we have unlimited potential. I think we extend and exist in all directions. But our limited minds can't really grasp that. And, and we're not really aware of things. I think there is a there's an amazing sort of cosmic flow or cosmic dance that happens in life that's kind of orchestrated on some level that we are not aware of. So these things, we can, might catch glimpses of them or have a fleeting sense of something so much bigger or behind us or part of us or some other reality beside us or another dimension within us. But I don't think it's something we can really intellectualize. Again, it's like spirituality and experience. If you knew you would die soon, would you make any change about yourself or your life? Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've already greatly reduced what I call the daily deluge of emails, and I will probably <laughs> reduce that further and be online less and outside more. And, you know, have cuddles with my hubby and, and just be out in nature more. Um, but, you know, I'm, always, I'm actually, it's interesting you ask the question because I did change my life very profoundly um, not so long ago on that level. And I feel I am much more doing, living that kind of life now, having sort of even asked myself that very same question. You know, if I only had a year to live, how would I be living now? I'm certainly much closer to that than I was before. Um, but I think laughter, love and laughter are kind of two key ingredients that we, we maybe don't make enough time for. Mm, wow, that's, that's true. Love and laughter. Yeah, we take ourselves so seriously <laughs> most do. of the time. Well, love is tough. <laughs> and I think running a, living a meaningful life, it takes responsibility. It's not about me only it's about people that my work could help so i'm gonna work more <laughs> so in a way it's a good way to live too right and die well yes and i think you know if there's something we love to do and we love sharing with people and in fact 
you know, we're all students and we're all teachers. I've always believed that I teach what I most need to learn. And I love it when I work with clients because I hear myself say the very things I need to keep remembering, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah, no. (laughs) So, you know, I see that's a gift. It's a gift to me and hopefully a gift to them. But, you know, we're in it together. So it's not as if I'm I'm doing them some big favor. You know, we're on a journey together. I just think if, if... for, for as long as that's meaningful and we love doing it, why would we stop? I don't even think of it as work. What are three things about life you know for sure? I think we are, I know we are far more powerful than we realize. I think we can make far more of an impact than we realize and that we're being called upon to really step up to that now and to be mindful of making a difference. These are wonderful questions. You know, I'd, I'd like more time to dwell on some of them because they're, they're profound and they really get us thinking about what matters most, you know, and, and who we really are and how we show up in the world and all of the things that count for us because we're looking for a more meaningful existence. Not everybody thinks that way. Thank you so much, Elgin, for this conversation. It has been meaningful and fun. Thank you, Valeria. I really enjoyed it. And I, I appreciate the invitation. It's always wonderful to, to chat with like-minded bots and to share the journey. Right. Where can we find more information about you, your books, services, um, future projects? Well, my website is the best place to go. Um, that's olgashian.com and I will probably provide the spelling of that, but it's O-L-G-A and then S for Sandra, H-E-E-A-N for Nicola.com. And people can contact me through that website as well. But lots of information in there, articles that they can read, blogs, some interesting things I hope that will inspire some people. Thank you so much again, Olga. Thank you, Valeria. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Olga Xien, please visit her website, olgaxien.com. Olga, O-L-G-A-S-H-E-E-A-N.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.